But I, I think the one of the things that I think about with this idea of stories and intention is how many characters in television start out with this great first impression, and you know what they're about, you know what they care about, you know that they're good, and then they spend four seasons making terrible mistakes, and you're still on board with them. You still want them to win. You still, you know, somehow, uh, you know, are are celebrating them, even though you're so frustrated. That they're making mistakes, and it's because they've established, without a doubt, in the way that, that I think is really important. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. This is our next edition of our Intellectual Humility miniseries with Shane Snow. Shane, what are we going to cover this time? All right. This one is The Science of Second Chances Part 2. So we just talked in the last episode about giving people second chances, paradoxes around you know, hero stories of transformation and forgiveness and our inability to forgive and a lot of other tangled up things that have to do with how we humans navigate the complexity of people making mistakes and learning from those people. In this episode, I want to talk about how we can get second chances in our work and our lives. Because uh, we know there's benefits to adaptation and change. That's what all this intellectual humility stuff is about. But if other people don't allow us to change without making us pay, that's liable to make us think twice about exercising intellectual humility. If people won't allow us to change or if we have to pay too high a price for changing our minds, then we're going to be more likely to engage in self-deception and convince ourselves that we don't need to change our minds even when it's the right thing to do. So I want to talk about that, how to increase your chances that others can get on board with you changing your mind. And, and so I think the place to start here is the two big questions. How do you prove to someone that you've changed? And how do you prove to someone that it's okay for you to have changed? Those are two different things, but I think they're kind of interesting to think through. And so the first one, how do you prove to someone that you've changed? There's, uh, there's just telling someone, hey, I've changed. So you remember that time I used to be a bank robber? Well, I'm not anymore. And that isn't necessarily persuasive. And there's two things, I think, that make the difference here. And I, I like to illustrate it with the apology at the, the laundromat. So you go to the laundromat, and the laundry machine eats your quarters. And then you see a sign that says, the machine eats your quarters. We apologize if there has been any inconvenience. That's not an apology at all. You do not think that the laundromat people care. You do not think that they're benevolent, you know, in the in the verbiage that we discussed last time around trust. You trust people who prove they're benevolent even if they make mistakes. You don't believe that the, the laundromat is benevolent if they say, we apologize if there's any inconvenience after they eat your quarters. But this is the kind of apology that a lot of us do when we try to convince people that, you know, that we've changed, we did something wrong, and now we've changed. We tend to not actually take it on the blame on ourselves. We say, I'm sorry that you were offended. <laughs> I'm sorry if the thing that I did caused problems, rather than saying, I'm sorry for causing problems. I'm sorry for saying something offensive. And 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 with this, there's also this you know collective habit that we have of apologizing or trying to convince people that we've changed, even when we genuinely have, have without pinpointing what it is that we've learned that we can do better. So if I let you down, you know, in a work situation and I want to regain your trust, if I just say sorry or sorry if I inconvenienced you, sorry if I let 
you down, even if I am sorry, you're not necessarily going to trust me, give me a second chance doing the same thing. But if I say, hey, I'm sorry, I did this thing and I've learned that next time I need to do this and that's what I'm going to try to do, that's going to give you more confidence that I've actually taken something away from the mistake. I think this is where, you know, this sort of like the basic first part of this thing of how do you get other people to give you second chances, help people to know what it is that you've learned so that you deserve a second chance. And that's something that I think we we forget because in our own heads, we know that we want to do better and we may even know that we've learned better and that we're going to give it a shot. But if other people don't know how we're going to do things differently next time, we're not giving them a reason to, to trust us, even if they know that we we mean well. It's like assigning someone the same task over and over again and they keep screwing it up the same way, you're just not going to assign them that task again. But if they tell you what it is that they did wrong, what they're going to do differently, that immediately creates confidence. And, you know, it, it lets you know that they're doing the work to not let you down again. So that's the first one. But I think the more interesting one from an intellectual humility standpoint is this one of how do you prove to someone that it's okay for you to have changed? That, you know, it's it's not just a matter of competence and what you learned and are going to do better next time, but it's a matter of, hey, this thing that I used to believe, I no longer believe, and are you okay with that? That's that's a more tricky one, and, and you know, it's more fraught when it comes to religion and politics, you know, and, the, you know, personal shared beliefs that a group will have, but it also, I think, it ties into some really interesting psychology when uh, we're talking about work situations. So we'll pause there for a second, see if you have any reactions before before I kind of dive in. No, keep going. Okay. So we, if you change your mind about something important, it's sometimes hard. It's actually really often hard to, to own up to that because you're worried about your position in the group uh, that you belong to. And, and we talked about this a little bit last time, but if you and I are, you know, we're working on a project together. We have the same kind of set of beliefs about the way it should be done. And I come in and I say, we're totally wrong. We got to do it this way. There's a risk that I've just introduced to that. And it's because not, it's not because trying to find the right way to do things is, you know, something that no one wants. It's because what I've kind of said in the subtext there is because you and I were on board with this previous way of doing things, and now I believe there's a better way. I'm saying that you were not smart enough back then when we were on board with the other way. And this is, I think, one of the underlying things that, that starts to create drama in, in teamwork settings uh, when it comes to changing your mind about things is this implicit you know, subtext. That, that other people are were wrong or stupid when really we're trying to say I was wrong and I've changed and I'm excited you know that, that there's a you know a potentially a better way. So this is the key fact to keep in mind when you're dealing with disagreements or you know or changing minds or trying to change other people's minds uh, for that matter. Nobody wants to be wrong and nobody wants to be stupid. So if you're going to get people on board with change, or on board with you having changed, the key is to defeat other people's uh, tendency to make it about them being wrong or stupid, to make it clear that this is not about that. And uh, you know that's easier said than done, but that's the principle. You want people to get on board with you changing because we make things about ourselves and ego and our identity groups and all of that. 
making sure that you're not triggering any triggering anyone to think that there's an accusation somewhere that they were stupid or wrong. Much easier said than done. That's that's the principle though. So I've been thinking a lot, and I'd love to to get your thoughts on this. I've been thinking a lot about how to express to people that you've changed your mind about something in ways that prevent other people from feeling stupid. And there's a, a couple of things that I've come across that I, I think are really good kind of starting points for this. And, and I am I'm hoping you have some, some ideas on other ways to do this. But it turns out that when you look at research, people are, and some of this is from my own intellectual humility study, and some is from other intellectual humility research that I've talked to the researchers about, People are generally more willing to tell other people that they've changed their minds or learned something because of a book than because of a news article. Telling someone, hey, I read this book and now I think this is a lot safer socially than telling someone, hey, I read this article and now I think this, or I saw on Facebook this and now I think differently. There's something about books, and it turns out also documentaries, that are this completely safe way to blame your change and what you learned on. And and my hypothesis so far is that one, reading a book takes enough work that it, it indicates that you've actually done homework and you've it, it kind of tells people that you're trying to be thoughtful about whatever it is you're learning or trying to change about, uh, that you took the time to actually research in a book rather than just confirm your biases on the internet. But also that there's this authoritativeness that uh, the books still have, and, and documentaries, I think, in large part do too, that people are more willing to accept, well, I didn't know this thing, or I didn't agree with this thing, but because of a book, an authoritative source, I'm willing to get on board with it without feeling so bad about myself, because it took a whole book to, you know, to sort of draw this out. And I don't know if that theory is solid yet, but that's my hypothesis that like, which, you know, kind of gets to the, the main, the main theory with this is that if you have a compelling enough third party reason to blame the change on that takes the pressure off it being your fault or their fault for not knowing. I don't know. I, I'm curious your reaction to that. You know, one of the examples a guy I've just been super impressed with who I feel like lives part of this has a bit of an answer to that. So he's Brett Thompson. He started this kind of voiceover IP phone company for companies that he like, he was setting up a tech company was super annoyed at how expensive the phone systems were. Mm -hmm. So he started a whole company to make, to make it cheap. Okay. It's called Jive, built it up. Then I think private equity came in and, and bought a big chunk of it anyways, and ended up selling for like $350 million. And he wanted to try some new experiments. So he thought maybe he'd like get some billboard space to just see what people's reactions were on something. And they like, they wouldn't let him buy it unless it was like six months at a time. He's like, that's ridiculous. So he started this company called Blip Billboards, where you can buy like eight seconds of billboard time at a, for like, you know, anywhere from one to 25 cents or something. Right. Pretty awesome. And he, he just talked about this idea of like problem solving in business doesn't have to be me against you. We can say, Hey, why don't I make a guess and you make a guess. And then let's go get data. And then let's see what the data says. And all of a sudden, it stops being about my idea versus your idea. And it starts being about this, this like assumption that we're both going to make wise decisions based on data. And, and the, the honesty that I'm just guessing, I don't have a crystal ball, right? Mm -hmm. And I feel like it just takes so much out of the sting out of being wrong to admit we're both guessing up front, and we're going to let real life be the tiebreaker, you know? Yeah. And I get that's not practical in every time but but the idea of like if we're intentionally looking for experiments you know yes. and ways to have the data tell us the truth instead of Jess was right or Shane was right to me that just really felt like a key because I'm such a passionate guy 
who can get so married to my own ideas and bulldoze everyone else. It was really inspiring to me, and especially that it was somebody as accomplished as him in business that had lived it. Yeah, and made it stick more for me. Well, what what he's doing there when he advocates the go out and get data, uh, you know, that approach, you know, we don't quite know, and that's okay. And so in the team effort, we're going to go out and get data. He's depersonalizing the reason for change, right? Which makes it not, you know, whoever had the right guess, it's not like that means that they're better or worse, because we're both trying, we're all trying to find the answer. And you know, it's not personal at all. It's not yours or mine. You know, there's no no party and trophy for, you know, whoever it was that lucked into the answer, if anyone does, right? That depersonalization, I think, is really key. And I think the, you know, the other related point to that is that the, how you arrive at your reasoning for doing something, you know, whether it's changing your mind or changing your business strategy or, you know, whatever it is, how you arrive at that is going to make a huge difference about whether people get on board or not. Having a great story of the, you know, the journey to try and figure it out and all of the things that you did to come to the conclusion is going to be a lot more persuasive, you know, as a leader, you know, we, we're making this decision and it's going to be a big change. Here's the story of how we got to it. That's going to be a lot more persuasive than saying, hey, I've decided to change, deal with it, you know, or we're doing this because it's the right thing, you know, thereby implying that the thing we were doing before is the wrong thing. And anyone who fought hard for it is also wrong and maybe stupid. You know, the explaining the journey and, and that it actually takes work and thinking and collecting data to do that ends up making taking the pressure off and taking the personal part out of a lot of these kinds of things. I, I think, you know, for change management in general, the advice I, I always give to leaders is to, especially if you're a new leader, frame whatever it is that you're wanting to change in the context of the whole history of the team or the company. We started here wanting to do this, or you guys started here wanting to do this, and here's all the things you went through, and here's the obstacles you overcame, and the things we learned, and now we have this huge problem in front of us, and here's what we've done to decide what the right thing to do is, and this is why we are now making this decision. So much easier for people to get on board, even if they don't agree with the decision, knowing that process makes it a lot easier to, to accept the change, even if you don't agree with it. And I think you know whether we're talking in that company context or just you and me, if I'm saying, hey, Jess, I, I've decided that intellectual humility is bunk and here's why. And it's the long story of you know me struggling with trying to understand it and, and realizing and here's what I encountered. And that's going to be more persuasive than me being like, never mind. So I think that's, you know, once again, the answer to, you know, some of the, the hardest questions we face in business and relationships is take more time, <laughs> take a little longer to say it, take a little longer to, to, to decide what you're going to do, take a little longer to explain why you decided what to do. But I think that's kind of what, you know, what these stories all sort of have in common. Going out to get data is about understanding that journey and helping other people understand that journey as much as it is about finding the answer. Yeah. You know, as you're talking there, I'm realizing it actually brings in another principle you talked about of like, not only does it depersonalize to say we're going to have the data tell us the truth, right? It is also a different thing on the identity because I'm not, I, I by definition am saying that I'm not the kind of guy who knows, which makes it safe for you not to be the guy who knows, right? And let's just be honest that we're just making guesses, you know? You think we have those organizations like we are the organization of smart people who know versus mm -hmm. we're the organization of continuous improvers. Yeah. You know, and that identity aspect of it. Right. I, I like that. And I, I think especially when the person with the most power is leading with that, like I don't have all the answers. 
and that's oh, okay. Yeah, right? That makes it so much more okay for you know people who have less power to you know to breathe a sigh of relief and try and find the answers rather than be paranoid about having them. Yeah, it's like the three most important things in leadership. First one you can guess probably example, but the second one you might not guess example. And guess what? The third one's example. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Yeah. So there's, a, you know, another, I, I'd say, if we're talking about leadership in particular, or being in a position of power, another thing, I call it an old trick, but I mean, you know, just a technique for getting people comfortable with change or the fact that you've changed is, and especially when you're, you know, you're changing something that's going to affect a lot of people on where they might be liable to think, oh, he's saying I'm wrong or stupid. It's taking the blame on yourself when you basically announce a better way. So it's this gracious thing that I think a lot of good leaders do where they give the credit to the team when when something goes right, but they take the blame themselves when something goes wrong. And you know, the the kind of boss that will defend you to other people and and take your mistake, the blame for your mistake is the kind of boss that you will go to bat for later, right? Like that's showing benevolence, you know. And so I think this I'm trying to I hadn't really thought through how I was going to phrase this, but this strategy of hey, we, you know, the way we used to do things is wrong, or is no longer going to work. So we need to change and do this. Framing that by saying, I thought this was the right way to go. And I had all of this good reasoning, but I screwed up when I didn't consider these other things or when I, you know, whatever it is. And, and so that's what I've learned is that, you know, that's, that's my bad. That's on me. However, we have the people and the tools and the resources to now really go after the thing that's the right thing to do. It's kind of like, there's a way to do it in a, a cheesy or disingenuous way. Uh, and then there's a way to do it in a real way by, you know, acknowledging that uh, no one wants to be wrong. And uh, and so if you're the one who really has learned something in finding out that you're wrong, then uh, then you're letting some pressure out for everyone else so that they can get on board with change too. Does that make sense how I'm, how I'm describing that? Yeah, I think so. Where would you go from there? So I think the last big thing with this is uh, it has to do with the books and documentary thing. I think a lot about storytelling, you know, in marketing and sales for sure, but in leadership as well. And I think in our personal lives, you know, we, we use stories as humans to, you know, to help people understand things, remember things to create meaning. Sometimes that can be used for good. Sometimes it can be used for ill. But stories are proven to help people change their minds in ways that other things aren't. You know, a PowerPoint slide is not going to change, no matter how cool the stats are on the slide, they're not going to change people's minds in the way that a really powerful story can. And this is, you know, you, you look back at every great social movement, for example, that really overcame the odds. They aren't, you don't get people to be inspired to rally or to march or to, you know, vote for change by showing them statistics. You get people to do all of that by telling the story of the woman who wouldn't give up her seat on the, in the bus, right? So stories are really powerful for motivating us to, to get on board with change and actually to do something, you know, as a result of what it is that we're on board with now. And so the, the thing that I think about when it comes to, you know, other, getting other people to give us second chances, getting other people to get on board with the change that we want to make, you know, when we're, we're trying to be intellectually humble and actually change, uh, I think about the power of storytelling and why stories can help so much to get us to change our minds and to legitimize that change in others' minds. And I think the answer 
is that it engages stories engage a part of our brain that we don't give enough credit when making decisions in business is actually our emotions and and in past episodes we've talked a lot about you know suspending feelings and separating thoughts and feelings and all of that is true and emotions are formed in our brain and they're a crucial part of our brain and you know this better than than me knowing uh, you know your your neuroscience expertise but our thinking process is not just the logical thinking part it's also the emotion part telling us what to care about and what's important the the, the example that I, I tend to use is if you didn't have the emotional part of your brain to tell you what's important then when the saber-toothed tiger started walking towards you with his fangs out, you would think about what is this and what should I do? And by the time you're done thinking about what to do, he would eat you. Whereas your emotions and your brain tells you this looks like a threat. Let's get the blood going. And then your brain can now say, ah, this is important and it's a bad thing. Should I run or should I fight? You know, and it, it's not so simple as that in real life. But but this is where stories, I think, end up being a very useful part of our toolkit if we're trying to get people on board with change. Using stories as a replacement for data is not very smart because stories can be persuasive when they shouldn't be. You know, using emotion as a replacement for logic is not very smart, but using emotions as a way to get people to pay attention to your new logic when you want to teach them something, I think is a very powerful leadership tool. So telling a story that has tension in it, that establishes where I was and where I wanted to be and the gap between those things and the obstacles and the figuring out how to do things, stories that have novelty, that you know surprise people, that have twists that people wouldn't have you know come up with on their own or thought of unless they'd heard this story, that engages our emotions of excitement and joy and anxiety. And those tell our brain that this is something important, which makes us more inclined to consider believing it, going along with it, or doing the hard things, such as actually, you know, doing the work that goes along with change. So, you know, like anything that's a tool, it can be used to get people to hate other people, telling stories that are not, you know, true or flattering or whatever. But it can also, stories can be used to get people to overcome the resistance to change. So if I want to make a big change at work because I've decided that there's a new way to do things, that's going to be good for all of us, even though it means I was wrong before, even though it's going to be hard. Saying all that is fine, but framing that in terms of our story together and our hero's journey as a team is going to be a lot more effective getting people's emotions engaged so that they can subconsciously believe this is important enough to actually consider doing the hard work. Does that make sense? Yeah, I also think that we experience life in this chronological unfolding of events. So stories are so relatable to us, right? Yeah. And if you think about it, so often... We actually judge people by their intentions rather than their actions. I'm going to clarify that. My hero, Terry Warner, uh, guy who wrote Bonds That Make Us Free, he, when he was teaching at Oxford, he wrote this paper called Anger and Similar Delusions. And he highlights this point of like, if somebody smashes into me from behind, I can get really angry with them for, hit, for bumping into me or p- piling into me, right? And then the second that I find out that somebody actually shoved them, and they knocked into me, I'm, I'm no longer angry at them. I'm angry at the person who did the shoving, mm-hmm. right? And so this idea of like what they did made me angry, it, he says is false. And that, that essentially we have, we have control over our emotions because we have the right to reframe what we, what we are seeing to interpret it, right? And, and that really anger has a lot to do with judgment. Mm-hmm. And you can tell because if I judge it was accidental versus I judge it wasn't their fault versus I judge it was malicious. The same action creates a different emotional response in me, right? Mm -hmm. And stories have such an ability to 
give that context so that we can assign so we can attempt to assign intention which mm. like you said if i if i can see a good person making a poor choice versus a person who consistently makes selfish choices yeah. do you know, like my my judgment on the situation changes right and you know, you look at the like warren buffett says it takes 20 years to build a reputation and five minutes to lose it right yeah mm-hmm and from a safety perspective, if we're looking for consistency and we're looking for someone we can trust that when we ask them to do this and they say they're going to do it, that they'll be where they said they were going to be when they said they were going to be there instead of instead of just apologizing or just being sorry, they're actually going to be there, right? We typically want to see a number of repetitions to, to inform that we have faith in it where it only takes one lack of repetition yes. for us to call it into doubt. And then we need to start seeing a whole bunch in order if we're going to risk our reputation on them being where they said they were going to be when they said they were going to be there. Yes. Yeah. Um, whereas I, to me, like the story, the story can sometimes help me have them not lose reputation if I can start to recognize why they didn't make it. Right. However, a story that is trying to shift blame can can actually make me doubt all sorts of things about them. And that's why we all think excuses are useless. Right. 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 Well, they're not they're not that useless. If they didn't work, sometimes we wouldn't all use them. Right. <laughs> Right. <laughs> in many cases, there's like, we can come up with an excuse for almost anything. You know, my, my dad, there's this guy in my church group when I was a kid, my dad had some plumbing issue. And so he called this guy who used to be a plumber, a retired guy, and said, uh, hey, could you come help me do with it? Could you help me deal with it? And he says, he said, I can't, I, I have a vision problem. He's like, oh, no, John, what's 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 wrong with your vision? He says, I can't see myself doing it. <laughs> he says, he says, but really, that's just a fried chicken excuse. That's like, what's the fried chicken excuse? He's like, oh, well, I had fried chicken for dinner last night. He's like, well, what does that have to do with anything? He says, oh, nothing. It's just when you're looking for an excuse, anything will do. Right. So <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so the point is, we can all make an excuse for anything. Right. And very often we actually impress people better by saying, while this and this happened, it was my failure to not have enough buffer to mm-hmm. to anticipate traffic. Traffic was bad. There was an accident. There's no way I, was, I could make it here. However, I'm the guy who didn't leave 30 minutes early in case there was traffic, you know. And like those stories are so integral to us potentially saving reputation or potentially starting on the road to rebuilding it. Because you tell a story about a lame excuse and you are not, not only did you miss it, you've actually lost points by not taking personal responsibility. So anyways. Yeah, no, I love it. That's my monologue there. I I think people are good at discerning. And I mean, I I love that you you pointed out that we're we're looking for people's intentions, you know, in these stories. And if if we can assign good intention, that we will give people more leeway than if we can't. And if the story, if the excuse sucks, then, you know, we we can discern that and we can we can tell and, you know, and deal with that. But I, I think the one of the things that I think about with this idea of stories and intention is how many characters in television start out with this great first impression and you know what they're about, you know what they care about, you know that they're good, and then they spend four seasons making terrible mistakes and you're still on board with them. You still want them to win. You still, you know, somehow, uh, you know, are are celebrating them even though you're so frustrated that they're making mistakes. And it's because they've established without a doubt in the way that, that you know, I think stories can do better than, than a lot of things and maybe even fictional stories can. They establish the intentions of the character that they're good. I, you know, I, I think I might have talked about Lost before in one of our episodes, but Jack, the, the doctor in the first episode of Lost, spends the pilot you know, saving people and getting shrapnel out of them after the plane crash. And then he spends six seasons 
being drunk and making mistakes and, uh, you know, saying the wrong thing. And, and he's still the hero and we still want him, you know, and every once in a while he has to do something to redeem himself. He has to do some things right sometimes, but we know that he cares and that's why we're on board. And that first impression, you know, is it's hard to shake a, a really positive first impression and in the same way that I think it's hard to shake a negative impression. But, uh, but yeah, it's really the thing underneath that is their intention. Their good intentions are what we're looking for in these kinds of stories. And if you can tell a story that establishes that, then people will, will be more likely to follow you or give you credit or cut you slack. You know, I've got a bu- couple of buddies who are just, who are late people. Like they'll show up three hours late for something oh, wow. without, <laughs> without an apology. Right. And, but they always have excuses, but not apologies. And this idea of like, we are what we repeatedly do, you know, mm-hmm. very often, you know, my dad used to, my dad, I, I could always like talk my way around things supposedly, or I thought I could, right? And I remember one time he was like, son, I, I just can't hear the words. I can't hear the words that you're saying over the thunder of your actions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And this idea of like, am I the person who repeatedly takes high levels of personal responsibility? Am I the per? you know, mm-hmm. it can make up for I didn't and, you know, it can make up, make up for I didn't make this thing. You know, I didn't, I, di- I wasn't, I wasn't there on time. If I, if I am, you know, if my story, if the story in their head because of my actions is just as a highly responsible person, you know, he's calling if he's, th- if he, you know, if he's going to be four minutes late for something, he's calling ahead saying, I apologize, I'm going to be four minutes late, right? If that's the story that they've seen, because that's what I've repeatedly done, man, I get so much more leeway. And should I make a mistake, even if it was really blatantly a mistake, it's easier for me to climb out of that hole, right? Yeah. But I am going to have to do some... I'm going to have to do some meaningful repetitions to get out of the hole, even if it's not as deep, right? Yeah. Yeah. And there's a, a big difference between showing up three hours late and calling to say you're going to be three hours late. Both are disappointing, but one shows, you know, a lot more. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, even with that, there's layers of responsibility. You're, you're you know, you're missing, uh, you know, one deadline, but you're showing some, at least some responsibility by uh, acknowledging it, you know, ahead of time rather than after the fact. And, you know, I think some people who are have like that, I think is a good, you know, sort of safe example. If you're someone who's habitually late, you may know that you can call and let people know that you're going to be late. But, you know, the pain of doing that versus, you know, getting away with it. But, you know, is that the person that you're going to give the codes to the, you know, the nukes? Probably not. Well, in my case, I am not going to risk a business deal where I need, where him being on time or not is a reflection on our professionalism. Yeah. I don't invite him to be a part of things. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? I love him to death. He's like one of my best friends. But but it's it's not safe for paying my family's mortgage to to have our reputation of professionalism to depend on his ability to yep. be on time. You know, here's an interesting one on this theme of second chances. If he was to decide that he was going to turn over a new leaf and be punctual, I would dare say he could persuade you to give him a shot at that. And, you know, if he didn't do it, then he wouldn't do it. But if, you know, if he started showing up on time, I dare say that he could change your mind about that thing. However, I bet someone that you don't have a good personal relationship with who you love, just a random person was like 10 times and then said, I swear I'm turning over a new leaf. I doubt you'd give them the same chance that you would this guy. Uh, Am I right to say that? Yeah. There's so much complexity about our relationships and our survival 
and our judgment of others' intentions and our observations of their actions, how that all swirls together, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, there really is. But there's something to be said for, I mean, this is part of why we, you know, why we have relationships. We establish, you know, a way, a little bit, you know, we, we get different terms, you know, with people that we have a good relationship with than, than we get with people we don't. And that's, that's kind of the way it is. But that's, uh, you know, I think when we're dealing with people who don't know us, establishing the kind of character that they could trust without having to get to know us for years and years, like is required to, you know, to sometimes let people have a second chance. That I think is a, is a key challenge. And I mean, I, I'm pretty convinced that someone who models benevolence, who models intellectual humility in all of their example uh, that you're talking about is someone that can earn uh, that from people, but also probably someone who's not making as many mistakes because you don't make the same mistake three times if you're being cognizant of how you can be growing. It's funny how we want to be judged on our good intentions Mm -hmm. more so than if we delivered on them or not. And yet, as humans, we're so tempted to charge other to to judge others on what what they did rather than their good intentions, right? Yeah. And yet, it makes us magnetic as a business person, as a leader, as a parent, as a whatever. If we can reverse this, if we can mm. hold ourselves to incredibly high standards and give others the benefit of the doubt, instead of the reverse, we're tempted to. Yeah. You know, you think about how like a being around that person is easier for us when they're when they're giving us the benefit of the doubt stuff and how it's like inspiring and magnetic to spend time with someone who's consistently holding themselves to a high standard not giving themselves a pass on their good intentions trying to take higher personal levels responsibility for what actually happened instead of what they meant to do like yeah natural magnetism right i love that i yeah i i don't think i could i could say it better flipping that expectation we have or or how we want to be treated and treating people charitably while holding ourselves to that responsible for the outcome in our actions. I think that's awesome. Yeah, that's what you should write your book about. Or I don't know if it's a whole book. That's a that's definitely a, a, a chapter, a life-changing chapter there. I love it. Well, anything you want to end with? I feel like it's been a great session. I, you know, I think the idea of depersonalizing in general is so helpful when we're talking about intellectual humility. We're talking about ideas. We're talking about habits. We're talking about business. You know, we're talking about strategies. All of those are not us. And so we can change those. And the more that we can depersonalize those things for ourselves and for others, the better we'll do. And I think that mixed with this graciousness, kind of what you're, you're talking about, being gracious to other people, uh, allowing them the benefit of the doubt, allowing it to not be personal to them when they make mistakes. And, uh, you know, and I think those two things, depersonalizing and, and being gracious go a long way, whether we're talking about relationships or, or leadership. So I like those as two kind of keywords from today as it has to do with intellectual humility. Great. Well, everybody, tune back in. We're going to have more of these. Thanks for listening. Bye now.